This is the chapter by chapter live class from Crossroads Assembly of God Church in Greenville. And today we are beginning a study of the Gospels and we will be beginning with Mark chapter 1. And um, before we start Mark chapter 1 in a study of the Gospels, I, I, I feel like I need to tell you a story. Because as I was studying this, I kept thinking of the, the Joneses, which are my grandmother's family. And uh, my grandmother was the youngest child of seven and grew up in the country. And uh, she had two sisters. One was the oldest child who was 12 years older than she was. And then her second sister was in the middle. And then there were two brothers uh, above the middle sister and two brothers below the middle sister. So there's a wide age range between each of the sisters in this family. And they, um, I don't know if it's a typical relationship because there aren't any females in my family, but, uh, well, other than my wife, of course. Um, never mind. Um, They were jealous of each other. They had a lot of uh, history between each other. Um, they were, they, they, they kind of spent a lot of time trying to get each other's goat, so to speak, you know? So when I was a kid, uh, the bicentennial came around, you know, 70, uh, 1976. And uh, one of the family, which was a, a nephew, had purchased the original farm in Laneville where they had all grown up, and he had restored the farmhouse where they all grew up. So they had, the, they called it the old home place. The whole home place had been restored, and the farm was working again, you know. So, so he invites all the Joneses out to the farm in Laneville for a family reunion on July 4th, uh, during the bicentennial. So it was kind of a big event. And there were probably 60 people that came to that event, you know, and counting all of everybody's grandkids. Well, there were seven kids, and they all had families, and they were all grandparents at that point, you know. So they all had their, there were seven different families that all came out there. So this is, this is a pretty good crew. And, and I was one of those, you know, my, my grandmother being the youngest daughter. So Minnie, the sister in the middle, wanted to do something nice for the bicentennial. So she painstakingly, and spent some time on this, wrote out her memories of growing up on the farm, uh, the things that they did. She spent an extensive amount of time describing how you canned vegetables. I remember that part. And her whole point was to tell her grandchildren what her life was like and how it was different from what their life was like because my generation was a bunch of weak little townies that didn't know anything about working on the farm. You know, that was the point of, of her thing. And so it really wasn't a biography or anything. It was just a description of country life. But she put a lot of work into it, and it went through, I could tell it was clean, so it went through several drafts, and she printed it up as a pamphlet and gave that out at the Bicentennial, which I thought was really nice. I liked mine. Sadie, the oldest sister, read that and rolled her eyes. 
Oh my goodness, you're talking about canning. And why didn't you talk about that time when Robert and John went out hunting and so-and-so, you know? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And she just spent the whole family reunion trashing Minnie's little pamphlet, which Minnie had put a great deal of effort into and I thought was a success for her purpose, you know? So the next year for Christmas, we get in the mail this little pamphlet written by my oldest aunt, Aunt Sadie, where she had about doubled the amount of words in what Minnie had done. And instead of writing about life on the farm, she was writing about the relationships between all of the kids on the farm and their childhood and how they got along and things that happened and funny stuff. And, you know, it was a very different kind of pamphlet. And so my grandmother gets that. I like mine, by the way. And, and uh, my grandmother, who was the youngest daughter, gets that and rolls her eyes. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe that Sadie. Do oh, wh what is she? Because my great aunt was, uh, how can I put this about her story? Everybody is the hero in their own story, you know? So... So she's always perfect and good, and all of her brothers and sisters are questionable in their decision-making. You know, she is the oldest sister, and that is the typical oldest sister approach to how you view the world, you know? So uh, my grandmother rises up in arms because she's not going to, first of all, be outdone by her sisters that she's jealous of, and second of all, her perspective on things was very, very different as the youngest sister. Does that make sense? So my grandmother gears up for war, and uh, I end up getting sucked into this vortex, and I turn into her editor. And she ends up writing uh, by hand stories, and then she'd hand them to me, and then I would type them up and try to organize them. And after I had several pages of that, I would print it and give it to her, and then she would edit that and add something else to it. And we spent like a year, and that turned into her biography and my grandfather's biography and a little bit of, uh, of background and where the Joneses and the Evanses came from and then a whole lot about life on the farm on the Joneses and uh, she clarified all those issues and then we went on and talked about grandkids. It was, it, it ended up being a book about a quarter inch thick, eight and a half by 11. We bound it in hardback and everything. That's a lot like how the Gospels got started. There are four books. Uh, three of them are called synoptic gospels. John is not a synoptic. What synoptics are is a chronological account of a historical event, you know. Uh, John is, is, as an old man, wrote his uh, uh, gospel, and really what his is is a codification of all of his sugar-sick sermons that he's been preaching for the last 30 years. He basically wrote down all his sermons and then organized it, you know, but it doesn't really track Christ's life. It, it, it hits a lot of high points in Christ's life, but that's, that's kind of a different kind of book. They're all kind of aimed at different people, different directions. 
And so they have different purposes to them, and those different purposes change their approach in how to do stuff. And there's some comeupmanship in here too, which is why I want to start with Mark. Mark was... Yes, and it was written last, and it was written last by about 20 years after the others. It was, it was way late. Mark was written first, and I think was remarkably early. And then Matthew read Mark, rolled his eyes, because Mark wasn't there, and Matthew was. And Matthew basically laid out the outline for Mark. And then rewrote it just like my Aunt Sadie did for my Aunt Minnie, you know. And, and he put his stamp on it. But Mark was writing for the Romans. He was writing for Gentiles. Matthew was writing for Jews. And so he took a very different approach to it. And then we've got Luke, who really was not playing off the first two, but he was recording messages that were coming from... Uh, Paul, because he was following Paul around when he was an old man, he was his number two, and so most of what he learned came from him, and Luke was a doctor by trade, and very smart, and I'm thinking that makes sense because Paul, after everything that he went through, probably needed to travel with a doctor, um, but Luke was very detail-oriented, and so, you, you know, in one gospel, it'll say, you know, Jesus fed the, fi fed the, the masses with uh, uh, loaves and fishes. And then Luke, I can just see Luke sitting around the campfire after all day of preaching going, so how many loaves were there? How many fish were there? How many baskets? Because in Luke, he records there were five loaves two fishes and then there were all these but you know he, he's got he knows there's five thousand people there he's counting heads that's that's what luke does you know because he's a very type a guy you know he, he details are important and when you're a medical doctor details are important you know so none of them are dishonest none of them are making up anything but they're all looking at it from their own specific perspective does that make sense? Which is why uh, there are parallel Bibles. And, you know, I've had my, my little brother really approach me on a parallel Bible. And he says, you know, and what it is is you have each of the Gospels lined out so that you have the, the verses dealing with the historical incident uh, next to each other. And he thought there was a lot of inconsistencies between them. And, and the answer to that is, yeah, of course there are. You know, you've got four different witnesses if they were all absolutely the same, then the only conclusion that we could come to was that they're colluding off of each other and one is copying off the other. I mean, that, that's something they teach cops when they're getting statements from witnesses after a crime. If, 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 the, if the stories aren't a little bit different, then somebody, they're all lying. You know, it, it can't all be the same because people, remember things differently. People perceive things differently. Okay, so we begin with Mark. First of all, uh, we need to know who this guy is. Uh, Mark is the writer of the gospel, of course, and there are several references to Mark, the writer of the gospel, in early church literature. 
And it was supposedly written in Rome, and it was distributed in Rome, and it was written for Romans. And so there's a very Gentile approach to it because uh, the, the, the writer of Mark will stop and explain what a word means in Hebrew. He's writing in Greek, but you know, he, explain, he explains Hebrew customs because he assumes that his audience does not know what that is about. You know? And so we, assume, we, we, we can kind of tell that that's who he's writing for. Uh, Mark is generally believed to be John Mark from the New Testaments. And uh, there's no way to prove, prove that, but most early church leaders attributed those two people to be the same one. Now, John Mark, according to Acts and several other references, was the son of a woman who was a supporter of Paul. And uh, she offered up her home as a meeting place for the early church when Paul spoke, which means that her house was big enough for people to get a whole lot of people to get into, which means that she was probably wealthy. And when Paul went traveling, uh, he, he ended up taking her son with him. Now, that would kind of make sense since she's his supporter, and if she wants her son, who is also a Christian, to get out and be a minister himself, also, he's younger, uh, following around someone like Paul would be something of an education, and that would give him experience, and that would be a good thing all around. That's going to make him into a, a man. One of the, you know when the Acts are talking about they were in the upper room? Uh-huh. This is uh, actually uh, to, uh, Mark's mother's house. Where did you see that commentary? I don't have any problem with that interpretation. That, that's it's interesting. Right. I think that's likely, you know. Um... So Mark, as a kid, John Mark, excuse me, as a kid follows Paul out, and I'm summarizing a lot of gospel here, uh, and he travels for a bit, and he's a kid, he gets homesick, and he abandons uh, Paul and Barnabas, and he goes home, which royally ticked off Paul. I've heard that before, too. Uh, So on another trip, later in Acts, I think, uh, Barnabas suggests taking Mark again, and Paul refuses because he abandoned them. Oh, how dare he be a kid? Paul was a a hard man, and you kind of had to be considering where Paul had come from, you know? Uh, and so this was a big enough argument, and you know it makes sense if Barnabas was kin as to why Barnabas would feel so strongly about it. And uh, so Barnabas broke with Paul, and he had been traveling with him for a year or so, several actually, and, and he goes out on his own with John Mark, and Paul takes another second to travel with, and, and they break up. And of course the gospel then doubles in the amount of people that they reach. So imagine, funny how God works, huh? Uh, eventually, Mark, or John Mark, ends up following around 
Peter, who was really uh, uh, mostly around Jerusalem, but ended up in Rome. And it's generally understood that the mark of the Gospels was Peter's second, one of his disciples, and he follows him to Rome when Peter was called there, and eventually Peter was executed in Rome. And, And... Mark was probably there, and and all of that persecution may have been the instigator for him writing the book to begin with, you know, because he's writing to the Romans, he's trying to tell them who the Christians are, and the Christians are being persecuted, and this was under the reign of Nero, and it, 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 or was it Tiberius, I'm forgetting. Anyway, uh, that may have been the instigator for why he wrote it to the Romans to begin with. So that's basically the, the, the setup for the purpose for the book. This is a, uh, a story that Peter told Mark, right? Yes. Or it's just a accumulation of facts that Mark has learned through Peter. Because Mark wasn't there for it. But, so, but yes, yes. And, and, he's, and he's just, he's codified So, the timing for the writing of the book, which is kind of important, is it can't be written later than 70 A.D. because the temple in Jerusalem was torn down by the Romans in 70 A.D. And most commentators feel that if it was written after that time, then there would have been a reference to the fact that the temple had just been torn down. They were under extreme persecution at that point, and it would have reflected it, and it does not. So it's before then. Uh, A lot of people put it between 50 and 60 A.D., which would be about 20 to 30 years after Christ's ascension, which means that Mark was a child, maybe, when Christ ascended, and then he was, you know, a very... uh, 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 mature adult man by the time he's writing this I I know that 50 to 60 AD is the general consensus but uh, I'm really interested in Chuck Swindoll's uh, uh, interpretation of it and he places it much earlier because Matthew responds to Mark we know that Mark happened before Matthew and there are ways to date Matthew. We also know that Luke happened after Matthew, and that happened during, you know, and Luke recorded that during the range of, during the, 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 the ministry of Paul. Um, you can basically, th- 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 those books sort of push the writing of Mark earlier. And I, I really personally think that uh, it, th- this was recorded about the time that Peter was, was executed, and that I'm not sure exactly when that happened. It may have even been before Peter was executed. Uh, in any case, that that's the basic uh, 50 to 60 A.D. So, chapter one, chapter one through three. Uh, establishes the book. Oh, before I get started, one more thing. Mark focuses, because he's writing for the Romans, before he's writing for Gentiles, he focuses his book on explaining the significance of Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ died for their sins and how 
he saved the world. He, 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 it, it's, it's a witness. And he needs to get into those final days of Jesus Christ and what the significance of all of those things uh, meant to the Romans. And, and, and that's why he's writing this book. He's, he's converting the Romans to Christianity. And what's important is the book is those, that, that last week or so of Christ's life. And he puts a lot of time into that. A lot of chapters go into that last week. And I promise when he wrote this book, he wrote that first. Okay? He wrote the end of this book first. Then he thought, because this is what writers do, they're not going to understand what I'm saying here unless I do this backstory to fill in all those points and get up to this point. So then he goes back and he explains who Jesus is and how it was foretold that he would be coming in Elijah, and he zips through three years of Christ's life, broadly making statements about, you know, and then Christ performed a whole bunch of miracles, and then over here, you know, it's like that. And he's, he's, he's leaving out all this detail that's, that's important to people like, you know, the Jews, you know, which Matthew then goes in and fills in. Or, or people like Luke, who, who wants to know how many fish were there again, because that's kind of important to how I interpret this miracle, you know. And so uh, he, he's, he's zipping up to this end point. And so as you're reading through this, it seems like it's going really, really fast. And that's because it is. You know, he's trying to get to the end of this story. Uh, the first few chapters are just set up for what he's trying to say, you know. So, so that's kind of significant. So we begin with verses 1 through 3. Okay, I'm actually going to read a verse now. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. My NIV Bible, which is which is which is the translation that God wrote, uh, it, it says "calling in the wilderness." But but your lesser translation might possibly say "crying," and, and I, I I will accept your interpretation as well. To, to be fair, Ron, it was all written in Greek, and Greek is a weird language, and there, there is room for interpretation, which is why we have different versions. Thank you very much. Mark begins with Isaiah because he wants to establish for the reader that this is, that Christ is important because he was foretold in a prophecy thousands of years before. Uh -huh. Every gospel talks about this prophecy. Yeah, well, because it specifically says this guy is going to prophesy, and then the one is going to come. You know, and so and so John, I mean Mark, points out that John the Baptist is the one crying in the wilderness. So after he reads this, then he he starts with John the Baptist because he's establishing that John. 
anointed Jesus, and Jesus is therefore the one from Isaiah. And so this picture fulfills this prophecy. So in verses 4 through 8, And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Oh my goodness, this is so loaded. We could spend like a whole hour on these three verses. Um, Okay, first of all, baptizing. In the Jewish faith, uh, if you were born a Jew, you were born a Jew. You, you, you did not have to join the church. You were in the church from the moment you were born because you were Jewish. But the Jews, as a rule, did not mix with other people. They did not marry outside of their Hebrew, you know, uh, area, uh, their, their, their own people. Uh, they, uh, they, needed, they wanted to maintain their culture. They wanted to maintain their faith before God. They didn't want idol worship and, and pagan beliefs to infect them. They were kind of separatists, okay? So if you were not Hebrew and you found yourself living among the Hebrew, which happens, and you decided that that priest at the temple was right, and yes, Jehovah is God, because you see God working in their lives and in Jerusalem, and you want to join the Hebrew faith as a pagan, you could. There was a way. But you had to abandon everything that you were and rise up as a Jew. You had to die as a pagan and rise up as a Jew. So that was the picture. The Jewish priest would take this this converted pagan out into the river and he would dunk him in the water representing that he has died to his sin and his paganness and rise him up as in the faith before God. And that was how you joined the Hebrew people. And so, you know, if, if, if you had a Jewish man that married a, a pagan woman and she came in to, to, to live within, in, uh, in Israel, uh, she would be expected to embrace the, the, the Jewish faith and she would have to be baptized by the priest. And if you did, then everything was proper and, and that was fine. You know, it wasn't a sin to, to mix as long as they were part of us and everybody's on the same page. Well, during the time of John, there was all kinds of corruption, 
within the church. Uh, the priests were corrupt. There was, there was bribery that was going on. You know, we've been studying the minor prophets. This is only about 100 years after all of that, and uh, a bit after the Maccabees, and they've just had a big revolution, and the Romans are stepping on their necks. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of grift going on within the established Hebrew community, and no one can be trusted, and everyone sinned. And God is not blessing them. And they're looking for the Messiah because all of the prophecies say it's going to happen right now. That they were. And so John is pointing out that they need to repent of their sin. They need to repent of idol worship. They need to repent of their grift and their, their theft and their cheating and all of the, the corruption that's going on in their lives and recommit themselves to the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he, as this prophet, is standing out in the river burying Jewish people to their old sinful life and raising them up in a new walk with God. Now, this is all about repentance, this whole... Yes, it's about repentance. You can imagine how the... Well, everybody can't repent their sins. Yes, <laughs> and so even though they were Hebrews, he was saying that their sin has so tainted them, they might as well be pagans. Right. And he's, he's re-baptizing them into uh, 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 obedience to God. And he is an interesting character. He's living out in the woods. He hasn't bathed in a while. He hasn't cut his hair in a while. Um, many people interpret him as being a Nazarite, which was probably the case. He had probably taken a vow of being uh, uh, the, the, the Nazarite vow, which means that he was going to remain ceremonially pure all the time, which means that he could never touch a dead animal. He could never cut his hair. He couldn't, um, uh, I think, touch a woman, or it may have just been have relations with a woman, even your wife. Uh, and, and there were several other things, but basically it was the things that made you pure enough to walk into the, 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 the inner part of the temple. And so as a priest, he stayed clean all the time, whereas most priests would stay clean the day before Sabbath so that they could perform their duties in the... You know, because, because you know, sometimes you got to go shoot, shoot your, you kill a lamb and butcher him. Well, that made you unclean to go into the, into the temple the next day. So you, you had to stay clean for a day. I think that's how the rules worked. He, he stayed clean all the time. And there were several Nazarites who kept this all the time. So he's really taken an extreme religious vow in order to pursue God all the time. So he's trying to be intensely holy. And so in order to keep that vow, you have to stay away from people. So he's living out in the wilderness. He's not killing animals. He's living off of locusts, which evidently didn't count, and wild honey. He's eating what he can get, yes. And I think that's interesting, too. I always thought that was strange because I don't want to eat no grasshopper. No. But...
I guess so. I, I, yeah. Uh, I thought uh, uh, Andrea Sanders' interpretation of it was interesting. And, and she said that locusts represent God's judgment because it was one of the plagues of Egypt and also in, was it in Hosea? Wait, we studied that. Uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the minor prophets, uh, they talk about a locust plague as being God's judgment. And uh, so it's a symbol of judgment. And honey is a symbol of God's blessing. Because when they came into the new, new uh, land, it, it was full of milk and honey. Honey is uh, uh, God's picture of, 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 how, of provision for you. So in one hand, he's got God's judgment. And in the other hand, he has God's provision. He's, his life as other prophets have lived, is a picture of the message that he's trying to give to the, the, the Jewish people. I sure did have a locust, but it's a lot better with honey milk. <laughs> I've heard they're good with cinnamon, actually, but I have not tried one, nor do I intend to. Um, he's wearing camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Evidently, that doesn't count for not touching a dead animal. Uh, I was trying to figure out what that meant, and what I found was that that's what Elijah wore. It's, it's, it's the raiment of a prophet, and, and it's also the raiment of the poor. And so he's got a, a really scratchy, poorly made, low-quality garment and, uh, you know, strapped on with a big leather belt, and that's, that's how prophets dress. So he looks like a prophet. He lives like a prophet. And his message is, repent, there is a great one coming. That is his message. What you got? You had something on the edge of your tongue. Okay, fine, be that way. Okay, uh, so that's, that's unpacking four through eight. I get it all? Yeah. Okay, so now that he is baptizing people, here we have the fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah, which is 9 through 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Wow, he packed a lot in there, didn't he? One time in the Bible, the odds read upon the head was there. The God, uh, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. You know that story. All one time. But they're the same person. Yeah. Well, the Spirit, I'm saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the example of the Holy Spirit was a dove there. Uh-huh. And then Jesus gets baptized, and God pulls the head. Do you think it was a physical dove? think it looked like a dove it was a big white bird yeah it's just like unto a dove okay it wasn't just gentle it 
wasn't. It's weird. Everybody kind of chilled all of a sudden. Is it all kind of, you know, okay, maybe so. Um, yeah, I, I've always thought that was interesting as to how that's worded, and I've heard people have different opinions on it. Uh, Christ, what's important here is that John is the prophet. He, he's currently the prophet of Israel. And he anoints, basically with this baptism, he anoints Christ as being the, the king, basically. He's anointed him as priest and king. And I hope I got that right. And uh, it's, it's important for him to have this anointing in order for him to begin his ministry. You know, does he need to repent of his sins and rise up a, a, in a new walk with the God? No, you know, he's sinless already. So it's a little different with Christ as it is for all the rest of the people that John is baptizing. No, really, John really didn't want to baptize him. Right. Because of that very reason, there's no point to it. it but, but it means something different with Christ because he has to be baptized in order to take on this mantle of priesthood. And from the point that he, he is baptized uh, and the Holy Spirit comes down, then he kind of bec he becomes the, the new prophet for, for, for the people. And John stops. He basically passes on that role. John continues to preach and point to Christ, but John's ministry <coughs> sort of disappears and everybody follows Christ, which is what was supposed to happen. It'd be cool if they had John and Jesus like after they talked about before he got baptized. That would be really nice, wouldn't it? You know, some details would be nice. I think Luke would really appreciate some yeah. some some detail in there too. Yeah. Because he just zips right through that. He barely puts in two paragraphs. And that's that's massive. That's a huge, huge theological point. It doesn't try to explain any of it at all. No, he's just zipping on to the end. Ah, Mark, Mark, Mark. Um, and, and, and yes, I think so. Okay, this is a long chapter. We may not get through all this. Um, uh, 15. So let's look at uh, 14 through 20. So now Christ has been anointed. Oh, wait, no, verse 12. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. Okay, so, so, so John the Baptist dunks Jesus and anoints him as the new prophet, and then zap, he's gone. Wouldn't that kind of freak you out if you were watching that? I think it was Zappy's gone. I I think this was like this was like superhero X Men stuff. He zapped right out of that, and then he's in the desert. I think, bam! Isn't that what that says? I think that's what that says. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert. Does that mean that he ran out of the, the he he just, he just ran out of the creek and then rushed to the desert? Is that what it was? Oh. After the devil tempted Jesus every 
day, every hour is something. For the think 40 so? Days. Yeah, I think so. He really wanted to test these people. He was just sitting in the back of the room giving him grief all the time. That was out in the desert, wherever he was. He was rising, you know, not for four different times when we think of Bible. Yeah. He was rising for 40, for 40 days. Okay. Um, so, yes, Christ is tempted and tested. For 40 days. For 40 days. Not for, you know, three or four times. He was tempted for 40 Yeah, yeah. For 40 days. I think it was a constant thing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know what? Trials make us stronger. And I think there's a purpose to that kind of a, a trial. You know? Uh, Christ is all human here. I think it's something that like the devil tempted Jesus every way that he tempted us. Yes. So every way that we are tempted, God, Jesus dealt with within 40 days. So everything we have Jesus always went through. Right. The temptation. And that's important. And that's important because in order for him to sacrifice himself for us, he has to, we have to be able to embrace that. And if if he did something we can't do. Right. You know. If he had had been tempted by things that we go through, then how do you know what we went through? Right. (laughs) Okay. So... After he comes back from his 40 days of temptations in the desert, he wanders by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, After John, otherwise known as Lake Tiberias, by the way, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee. So that dates it a little bit. I don't know how how, how long it was, but notice it has to be within 40 days. So after John passes this mantle to Christ, He's in prison within two months. Right. Right? You know, so his, his ministry is on the way down at that point. Uh, Jesus went into Galilee claiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked in, uh, beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Is that how that story goes in is other... This, is, this a, is this the second time that happened? I don't think so. I think this is the time that's happened. Second time? No. No, he just doesn't have all the details. He wasn't there. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, his brother John, in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed them. Okay, that's not exactly how the story goes in other, other Gospels. Okay, so he called the disciples twice. Is that what you're trying to tell me, Lester? Maybe they went, and they went back to fishing. Then Jesus came back. That's why they didn't hesitate when Jesus called. They, he knew, they knew who he was already. I respectfully disagree, disagree <laughs> with your interpretation. Okay, oh, that's cool. <laughs> because I think this is where Peter and John and the other fishermen read Mark's accounts and rolled their eyes. 
because Mark wasn't there, and he's repeating something he's heard, and right. he left all the details out. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And that's why Matthew gets written, and it fills that in, and, and you know, and and Luke fills it in, you know, and so, and, and, and Matthew and Luke are actually talking to people that were there, and they're, and they're getting all the details, because Mark left that stuff out. It, it, it's a little bit of jealousy and comeupmanship, maybe not jealousy, but they're trying to get the story straight. Mark, was, in, for his part, did his job with what this book was supposed to do, but he, you know, that particular detail was kind of important to other people, and so they, they flesh out the story. But they, they knew who Jesus was before they, Jesus called them. You think? Yeah, because it went immediately. Once you have, if but you didn't know who the guy was, wouldn't you have to say, well, let me talk to my dad here. I think when they're all out and, and they're not getting any fish, and he says, throw it in the other side, and they go, why would you tell me to do that? And he says, throw it in on the other side, and then That's suddenly they bring in a big load. Then they come up and they get, okay, now who are you? So he's got their attention then. But that's what the, then it happened. That's no, it didn't because he didn't know the story. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I went so far to make this point and you just didn't get it at all. You got it? Oh, I don't I'm not saying you're wrong. Okay, 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 all right, all right. Yeah, of course there's a writer. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, okay, so he gathers the disciples, according to Mark, very quickly. And then he goes to Capernaum. So in the next paragraph, he is off in the next town. And they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit, he's in the synagogue and he's possessed by an evil spirit, uh, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Notice it's plural. Have you come to destroy us? Uh, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus, interestingly, replies, Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Yeah, I know. Uh, Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee, as Mark tells this to Romans. It's interesting because he told the Spirit to be quiet. Why do you think he told him to be quiet for? <sighs> well, I think he told him to be quiet because he, he did not want the Spirit to tell the people there who he was. He wanted to shut up and give time to reveal myself who I am, and now is not the time to do that. It had to be timing. The whole point of his ministry is for people to know who he was. Yeah. And so, I mean, but that's why he's here, is to tell people time, who he, he is. Didn't want, he, didn't want, he wants to tell them, but he didn't want those. And this, isn't the, fir- and this isn't the first time yeah. in, the, in his first two chapters. Christ keeps telling people. Uh, don't tell anybody about that. Uh, and I think it either 
he's concerned about timing and he's afraid that uh, his crucifixion will take place before he can that's have his whole ministry out. That's what I think it's all about. That's why he's going to shut up. Or he's afraid that he will be, it's, 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 it's public perception. He doesn't want to be known as the miracle worker. He wants people to hear his message. He wants to preach. He doesn't want them to just come to him blindly because he's working miracles. He wants them to come to God. There, right. there, there's a point to the miracles. Yeah, and and so he's controlling how people see him. So here, um, he's got this evil spirit. He commands these spirits not to announce who he was. Because he wants to control how they are. But people see him cast a demon out of a guy in church. And that's kind of a big deal. You know, that gets attention for him. Later on in the same chapter, he's talking to, he heals a man of leprosy. And he tells him, oh, don't, don't go tell anybody about this. But, but go to the priest. He tells him to do what he's supposed to do legally. You, you know, do things properly. And he, he has to bring a sacrifice to the priest. He has to present himself to the priest and show he's clean so that he can be declared legally clean so that he can not have the, the limitations of a leper legally on him and join society again and have a job and so forth. And, and, he, has to, and he has to offer the sacrifice to the priest so that he can do that. Well, that's, that's the proper thing to do. Well, does he do that? No. He goes and tells, well, well, wouldn't you tell everybody else? That's a really hard thing to tell a leper that, that you just healed, not to tell people who healed you. That's, 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 almost, that's, that's asking too much, I think. <clears throat> but he's still, I think that's the point. And I've always thought it odd that Christ would tell people not to tell people who he is. This ain't the first time. And also, it's not the first time he told somebody, don't go tell anybody that I heal you. But it was always at the beginning of his ministry. And at the end of his ministry, that that was not the case. That's very true. So so I think think it was timing. It wasn't consistent. That's exactly what I think so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um... So after he casts this demon out of this guy in church, oh, and he's also speaking with authority. That's another thing. Um, when rabbis preach, they, they're under conviction of God not to ever say anything in addition to what is written. And they often they won't even use the name of God. They won't say the word Jehovah because that's too presumptuous. You know, they're, they're very careful before God. And when they're teaching, they teach in big generalities and they don't say this is this and this is this and this is this. Well, we need to consider that. You know, they sound like they sound like Clayton Yeck in a therapy session. You know, it's really broad. Uh, Christ came in as an authoritative teacher and a rabbi, and he says, this is the fact, this is the fact, this is a sin, God's going to do this, God's not going to do that. And he nailed every point down declaratively, which is not what rabbis did. It, it was just his style of teaching 
was radically different than what rabbis were taught to do. Because if rabbis come in declaring things and they say something that's, that's them and not scripture, then that's a sin. And they're, 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 they're accountable to God for what they teach. And rightfully so. You know, so so because he is God, then he's not going to be wrong. So Christ is able to to make those declarative statements, and that's what that's referring to. And to Jews, that's a big deal. <clears throat> okay, so I've got maybe four minutes. Um, Jesus heals many. Let's let's do this next section, and then we'll stop it here. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. So they're hanging out together and going to each other's houses. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Hmm, typical. Uh, that evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and de demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So he goes to the synagogue in Capernaum, and, and, and that story gets out because he cast this demon out in the middle of church. Well, it's the Sabbath. So you can't go traveling on the Sabbath. That's a sin. That's too much work. So they had to wait till the Sabbath was over, which is sundown. So at sundown, they figured out where Jesus was, and everybody in town who had anybody sick or had a demon possession or something like that, they all show up at Jesus' door. And so Jesus has to go out on the front porch in the dark and heal people, and he did. Telling, telling, you know, demons not to speak. He had a very long day. And John, Mark continues to rocket his way through all these early miracles because we're going to get to the end and Christ's crucifixion. Uh, at the, and he spends a lot of time on that because that's really the point of his message. So he's trying, all he's doing is establishing who Christ is here for his supposedly Gentile audience. Okay, and, and that's where we're going to stop it. Uh, anything else? All right, with that, I'm signing off, and we will uh, continue with Mark chapter 1 to hopefully get into chapter 2 next week.